101. I'm Callum Roper and I am joined by Ollie Walwyn. Hello everyone. Uh, Bradley Allsop. Good evening folks. And Callum Watt. Good evening Callum. Yes, good evening. And uh, well, it's been another eventful week in in politics, uh, nationally and indeed internationally, as the uh, COP26 summit has come to an end. Uh, Just this Sunday when we're recording, we've finally got some, uh, I suppose, some announcements from the uh, summit. So we'll be looking at the, uh, I suppose, the end product uh, in this podcast. We'll be devoting essentially the whole podcast to analysing to see what's come out of it what's gone well potentially and also we'll be looking at what could have been done better certainly there's been a lot of wrangling in the last few days in terms of what exactly are the commitments certainly on things like coal um, certainly on other major commitments that certainly we were calling for maybe there's uh, no commitments whatsoever so we'll be looking through the uh, yeah the results of, of COP26 and really getting an understanding of, of where we are now and what does this mean for the uh, next few decades and whether we're going to actually be able to halt the uh, rapidly oncoming climate crisis that we see on our horizon. We'll also be looking uh, as a side to that at the levelling up agenda and uh, well rumours are going around now that the government is backing out of the uh, HS2 extension that will run to Leeds um, and really talking about the levelling up agenda and how this fits into the climate agenda that we need to be seeing. The Green New Deal, the, the better public transport, the green railway lines and and really an investment in our infrastructure that puts a green future first. Uh, the government has seemingly uh, backed out of this extension instead going for smaller measures that will still have some high speed, further high speed connections for Leeds, but certainly less than before. We'll also open out that into, into a wider debate, looking at the plans for investment around the country so so-called so gigafactories and um, so I suppose really windmill factories or wind farm factories, all these different industrial in, investments that the government's promising. And really, uh, we'll be looking to see whether they're going to put their money where their mouth is or if it's once again just empty, empty words, empty promises and no real action from the government. But we'll firstly be looking at COP26. So the, the outcome so far is, is, is this, really. We've had a, a commitment on, uh, on coal. The, the actual wording in, in the agreement is that we will be looking to phase down the use of coal. That was a, a big point of, uh, of debate, really. So countries like India and China were not happy with a, a commitment to completely phasing out coal. Uh, so the, uh, the terminology they're using is phasing down. There was no real commitment on the 1.5 degrees uh, rise commitment that, that so many people were pushing for. Um, that, that was another point of much haggling over the last couple of weeks. Um, certainly the UK government is, is claiming a victory on this, saying that uh, we, we've really taken a big step towards that. But there's still so many countries that aren't committing to this and certainly not committing to decarbonizing or making their, their carbon net zero in, in good enough time to make a real difference. And then finally, there, there's been no real actual mention in official documents of any major support for the uh, 
the so-called developing countries that are looking to decarbonize their economies or develop their economies in a green and sustainable way. Um, over the next five years, there has been a commitment for $500 billion to be invested in these countries for uh, adaptation um, of, of their economies, whatever that means. Um, I, I think this would translate as investment in greener energy, greener technology, things like that, as opposed to uh, paying them to keep the uh, carbon levels down. So I suppose it's a more sustainable, potentially, way of looking at it. But again, we've got to remember that over the last 10 years, there was a promise for $100 billion, uh, and only $80 billion of that was paid as of 2019. So, Ollie, what's your takeaway from the COP summit? Is this something that we can be celebrating the outcomes of, or is it certainly uh, something that we uh, should be worried about, that the commitments made are nowhere near enough? Well, that's a good question. Um, what certainly people are praising it, um, especially the people such as uh, you know Boris Johnson, who obviously needs it to be a success as as one of the the biggest um, points from of his uh, prime prime ministership. And then there's also uh, people like John Kerry, the the climate envoy for the United States, is praising it as a success. Um, but whether whether it can be considered a success, I mean, we've got this this document now. Um, which you know outlines quite a few different areas from um, emissions cuts to coal um, to ad- adaptation and, and climate finance and you know this this whole cop has been about uh, reaffir- reaffirming the, the 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 pledge to keep the the warming below 1.5 degrees um, above pre-industrial levels um, and you know the the analysis some very credible analysis which shows that current policies uh, would be on track for 2.4 degrees of of warming which would obviously be you know catastrophic um, but that's not as much as it has been in the past which um in i think in the 90s and the the 2000s this, it's previously been on track for uh, 3 degrees and even up to 4 degrees of warming depending on whose reports you read um, so, you know, it's certainly a step in the right direction, but whether it can be considered, a, um, you know, something which we can as praise, especially the, the dumbing down of the, the language around coal, which happened on the final day, uh, which is something um, I think a lot of activists have rightly pointed out as, as it shouldn't have happened. Um, and it's basically been uh, lobbied by countries which um, rely heavily on on fossil fuels such as oil and coal and gas um, so it is a shame um, but whether I, I don't know how much uh, a difference one little word would make maybe that's like really important and that's what countries but you know really cling to every every word of the agreement um, but this is the the first uh, UN conference of parties since Kyoto in 1997 which has made reference to phasing out any kind of fossil fuel. So I think that in itself tells you a lot about what you need to know about um, how serious we can take this, um, how you know countries are still heavily reliant on, on fossil fuels um, and cutting emissions into the future. So it's, it's really quite hard to, to gauge how much of a success we can, we can call this. Um, but you know, it's rightly gained a lot of, of media t- attention and hopefully it, it does some part in, in educating people. Um, and that's, I think, what we can hope for to put f- further pressure on on the government in the future to, to move forward. 
Absolutely. And uh, just to quote um, Boris Johnson, who gave a press conference today, he said that this was the death knell for coal uh, use going forward, um, which which did raise a few eyebrows. Uh, Ed Miliband saying that what he was doing was overspinning and under-delivering. Um, certainly, Bradley, do you think that he's been overspinning and under-delivering? I mean, if you could uh, sum up Boris Johnson's uh, premiership in one phrase, I think you'd be onto a pretty good winner uh, with that sentence, really. Um, look, this is what Boris does, and I think this is probably why Boris was so excited to, to host COP in the UK. It's all part of his optimistic premiership, um, you know, global Britain, um, that's outside the EU, but still a global Britain. Um, look, it's all nonsense, isn't it, really? What's been agreed today at COP, uh, you know, after two weeks of wrangling, and and not and not just that, you know, it's not as it's not as if it's the first time world leaders have come together. This is after decades of being warned in the starkest terms by scientists and activists and indigenous communities and, and people around the world. Um, you know, this this is a death sentence for hundreds of millions of people. It it quite literally that that's what it is. Um a misery for billions more throughout the century, if this is the best we can do. Um you know, now I, I've been trying to find out if, if progress has been made on that finance issue um, and a couple of other things. I, I think details are still filtering out, so I, I can't quite find it on the BBC website where that's been agreed. But, you know, you look at the US, they've consistently spent more than $500 billion on their military a year um, for years now. Um, and then, we're you know, countries are still wrangling around finding $100 billion for, for countries to support them. By the way, we, we should have stated in the last podcast that is $100 billion a year, not $100 billion lump sum which obviously changes it a lot. But still, even a year, 100 billion is, you know, it, it, it's pennies in terms of the global economy. If you look at the economies of the G20 and the spending of the G20, or the military spending alone, uh, you know, it, it's nothing. It's it's a seventh of, of what the US uh, spent on its its military, less than a seventh of what the US spent on its military in 2019. Um, so, you know, we've got world leaders patting themselves on the back tonight um, and, and talking big on climate change and, and talking as if they've got it. They haven't. You know, two point two point four degrees is a death sentence for hundreds of millions of people throughout the course of this century. Not not to mention the the misery, uh, you know, of of places in the tropics around the equator in the Middle East that will become virtually unlivable for human life, and um, l- large chunks of them are those areas. Uh, the loss of biodiversity, the loss of ecosystems, uh, you know, the economic impact that that's going to have. Uh, the conflicts it's going to produce, the cities will lose to rising sea levels. It's unconscionable. Um, So, uh, yes, this is progress on Paris. It is the best we've seen yet, but we're running out of time to wait for better. You know, they are meeting again next year um, to update some of of these things, Um, but we we really need to stop messing around now. You know, we we need a concrete plan, and we, we should have had it for years now. Um, and the longer we wait, the higher the seas will rise. Um, and 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 you know, I said on the last podcast with two point four degrees, if that if that's the estimate. Um, and I think I think that also the people that did that estimate said that that that's based off their twenty thirty pledges. And then if um, sorry, there was someone on Navarre Media saw this up yesterday, uh, this morning. Well, I was listening to it this morning. Um, but then if they then have a straight trajectory down to net zero from those 2030 pledges to 2050, then we could potentially be looking at 1.8 degrees. Um, but obviously that's a, that's a really big assumption. Um, but but even the 2.4 degrees is a massive assumption as well, because 
all of this, all of this is is warming up at the at the starting line, right? We, the race hasn't begun yet. Global emissions are still going up each year. The the pace at which they're going up is is declining rapidly, but they're still going up each year until we start to see declines in global emissions. We've not really got off the starting line on on climate change. So, two point four is catastrophic, but it assumes that governments actually do everything they're saying they're going to do in this. Which you know, take our government for instance. I certainly don't have any confidence in. We've certainly not seen the evidence of that so far. Um, and I also think there's, like I said last time, there's all sorts of feedback loops to do with climate change that we're still, you know, discovering and still, and the scientists are still trying to get their heads around and and, and appreciate. Which I think is going to make, if you aim for two point four, you, you possibly will get higher than that when once the feedback mechanisms start kicking in. And also, you know, what if things go wrong? What if there are unforeseen disasters? What if you know, when you plan for something, you build in place contingencies. What what if things go wrong and we can't quite meet that two point four? You know, very if if we're just clinching a deal that just about gets us two point four, that probably actually there's lots of things that could go wrong that actually mean we end up with two point five or two point six or two point seven. Then you have potential feedback mechanisms in. You know, you potentially look at it in the in the high twos, maybe even three. Um, you know, so really, what I, what I would want to be seeing in an ideal world. Is, is a set of pledges that get us to 1.3, 1.4 degrees of warming. So you've got a little bit of wiggle room to, to still for things to still go wrong um, and, and still hit 1.5. So, you know, we're, we're very far away from where we need to be and, and world leaders today can pat themselves on the back all they want. But yet again, they have re, re, reviewed the death sentence for hundreds of millions of people that, that they have signed in re, previous COPs um, and decided they are still happy with it as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and no, I, I think that on the back of that, certainly um, as a, I suppose as a as a, a world, we have to consider the the ramifications of of COP twenty six and the fact that despite the fact we've been told certainly by the media and and by the politicians that this is a incredibly aspirational set of goals, targets, commitments that we've established here over the last couple of weeks. They're still nowhere near where we need to be, and I, I think that's the biggest problem: is that we're potentially fooling ourselves that we've solved the issue before we've even started, um, and and that's the biggest worry for me. And just to touch on those millions, hundreds of millions of people that will be impacted by the climate crisis and and the heating up of, of the earth and the and the untold weather of unnatural weather events that will be occurring. There's still nobody talking about how are we going to address the issue of climate refugees, which will be a big issue over the next couple of decades? How are we going to support them? How are we going to ensure that they have a safe place to, to call a home when their own home has been scorched or flooded? So that's certainly something that we have to consider. Callum, what's your takeaway from it? Well, yeah, that, that point's going to be pertinent because obviously whenever you talk to uh, people about sort of what we can do for refugees there's always a mixed response as we know uh, some people are very generous and then many others are uh, quite hostile and it's the latter of the two that our government certainly supports um, but on the uh, issue of COP itself it's very strange to see uh, our government almost on the progressive side of things uh, when it comes to these conferences um but but it, ultimately it's uh, it's it's been a failure uh, cop 26 
um, okay, th things have been shifted a little bit, at least coal is being mentioned now. Um, but we've had 26 of these conferences, um, hence the name. And I think one of the uh, real problems is the structure. Uh, there's 197 uh, countries involved. And then, of course, there are also thousands of delegates from other organizations and, and so on. Um, and it was just depressing reading the uh, way that the uh, pledge on coal just continually got watered down because of the interests of, uh, of larger nations, um, especially, obviously, uh, China and India, who are, in fairness, trying to get up to development levels of uh, the UK and the US and, and uh, other Western nations. Um, and uh, something that's now being talked about a lot is given the urgency of needing these changes, having with having a conference where basically a single country can just veto the whole thing, um, whether it needs to be the case that uh, countries or indeed groups of countries need to set an example. Uh, so uh, obviously you have the European Union and the US, um, you could have uh, you you could have uh, the the uh, larger uh, European economic area involved, or or indeed um, you know uh, other other nations that are sympathetic, setting an example, which can then be followed by uh, almost shame, if you like, uh, those developing nations into changing their practices. Because, of course, another barrier, I think, is the fact that we are all waiting for universal agreement uh, at these COP conferences means that there's probably less innovation going on. Uh, so I think that um, our governments need to be behaving as if there were a more radical proposal or, or radical uh, agenda put forward at COP and not relying on... Uh, what COP has actually uh, said in this really rather wishy-washy compromise. We need to be setting an example so that other nations will follow. Because the fear is, I think, in developing nations that uh, if we're not allowed to use fossil fuels, then we can't develop. We need to show that that's so. Or not, uh, we need to show that that's not so, rather. Absolutely. And I, I think that's where this, or at least where I think from, from their point of view, the uh, 500 uh, billion is, is coming into it in terms of finding adaptations, as they're calling it. Now, obviously, over the next few days, we'll probably get a, more of an understanding of, of what adaptations are. Um, but from my perspective, I think this is allowing developing countries to find a, a greener more sustainable way of going forward but the the point around uh, developing countries is an interesting one because obviously a lot of the uh, big polluters um are barring china and and india you talk about the us uh, the uk um a lot of western countries you know they're uh, it's not just their own footprint but it's also their uh, exported footprint if you like so what are they bringing in because of that the way that they're living their lives or the way that they're um developing their economies or as their economies continue to develop not to mention the historical emissions as they uh, industrialized over the last 150 200 years 
Um, so certainly they, this, these sorts of questions did sort of come up, but nowhere near enough. So how do we allow um, or how do we encourage countries to develop in a, in a sustainable way and keeping them away from dirty fuels, but also allowing them to really punch punch above where they currently are. Because if we don't allow that, then nobody's going to go with us. Ultimately, governments have a responsibility to develop those economies. They also have a responsibility to the environment and to the planet. But as we've learned, they need to be given a, a, a way where they can do that affordably or they can benefit from that. And without the subsidies and without support from the developed nations, as we've already touched on, then I don't think that we're going to be able to get anywhere near that. Bradley? Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, you know, if you look at it in terms of a historic budget of carbon, you know, there's a certain amount of carbon that the human race was allowed to burn before catastrophe happened, right? And the developed countries like the UK, the US, uh, you know, most parts, you know, the Anglophone world and, and Europe have, have basically used up most of that and left a trickle for, for developing countries to use over the next few decades, right? Um, so, you know, so, so there's a historic responsibility there and that we, we've used up most of the carbon where, where, that, we can, that we can emit and not left any for you guys now that you're developing. Um, and, you know, if, if they develop in the same way that we did, we, we are all absolutely fucked, right? So there's um so there's that there's that responsibility in terms of it's us that's used it all up. So we we need to help you guys find a different way to do to do things, um and and that's where you know that funding comes in for, in terms of adaption, and and to find a, a better way you know almost leap the, the phrase that people use is, is leapfrogging, um the, you know the sort of industrialized carbon carbon heavy era that that we went through, um but it's that money's not just needed for the, the adaption um it, it's actually um sorry that's mitigation you know it's not just needed for mitigation it's needed for adaption to climate change in terms of dealing with the actual consequences of climate change that are already baked in so you know uh, providing fl- you know flood defenses uh improvements in agriculture that because they're going to see declining yields of, of various crops uh you know helping people that are, that are you know, climate migrants that are gonna that are gonna have to move from various areas that become uninhabitable potentially you know if you look at, at two degrees of warming if you look at various places in the Middle East and the tropics they become almost uninhabitable for human life uh, parts of them for, for chunks of the year so you know how, how are we going to resettle those people and ensure that they they have the infrastructure they need wherever they're going so it's not it's not just the mitigation side of things and helping them develop in a more green way. It's actually helping them deal with the stuff that, that's coming their way, no matter what happens at, at COP. Um, and again, because, because it's us that's, that has produced most of the emissions, you know, as I say, as I mean the West, um, then we've got a re- real, you know, moral responsibility to help those people um, because of the damage that we have inflicted upon them. Absolutely, and I think it is a case of morals, isn't it? It's um... We can talk about economic reasons. We can talk about, uh, you know, doing it because it, it, it is the right thing to do. And I think that that's why we should be talking about it, because ultimately it is the future of the planet, the future of the human race, the future of um, civilization as we know it, if you like. And now, I don't want to be too dramatic and, and make it sound like it's some sort of uh, movie trailer here, but it, it really is this this make or break at the moment. And uh, I think that we do have to really look at those commitments and make sure that we, as a, as a united world, 
making a decision and going together towards that goal. Because if, if only you have one or two countries um, doing it, then we've we've got no hope, really. Um, and, and I just wanted to touch on, before we, we moved on to our next uh, point of discussion, um, I was keen to get your perspectives on this uh, proposed talks in, in Egypt then next year. So we, we, I think Bradley mentioned it, they they did put on the table the opportunity next year to review what was discussed this year, what was agreed this year, and potentially some of the stuff that may have been left behind and to try and implement them. So um, if, if you could uh, bring anything to the table and see it pass, what would you like to see coming out of these uh, Egypt talks in 2022? Bradley. Yeah, I, I think the first thing I I would like to see is is a, a much more ambitious um, pa- yeah package to, to to aid developing countries, um, both in terms of helping them tr- transition or as leapfrog carbon and, and you know invest in all the green infrastructure that they're going to need, um, and to do so in an economically and socially just way, um, at, but also like I said, all, you know all the stuff to do with mitigation. A lot of those countries um, are going to be beginning going to get hit by by natural disasters more frequently. They're going to be hit by droughts, heat waves, floods. Um, it's going to cost a hell of a lot of money. To, you know, that sort of stuff happens in the UK, and it's a big, massive operation, and and it costs a lot of money, and it's it's a big news story. Imagine what it ha- what happens in a country that doesn't have the same level of infrastructure or, or public finances. So I, the first thing I would love to see is a, a more ambitious and generous package. I mean, it's not generous. You know, we, we, it's not, it's not, you're not generous if you give people money you owe them, that you just pay them back your debts. So I, generous is probably the wrong word, but you know what I mean. Um, so I'd love to, I'd love to see that. Um, and what, what I, I mean, it's simple, really, what we need. We, we need a set of pledges by countries that get us to, to 1.5 at least. I mean, like I said, but building in things going wrong and feedback loops, you know, you want 1.3, 1.4. The window on that's probably closing because we were already at one point one last time we measured it. Um, but but it's simple, really. You know, in, until countries have got, until all the pledges from countries match up to one point five, we're, we're not anywhere, really, are we? Um, so yeah, that that's what I'd like to see. Yeah, absolutely. And and Callum, what what would you like to see come out of uh, these proposed talks next year? Then I think we really need that final commitment to uh, eliminating fossil fuels and as I say after watching uh, COP26 I really can't see it happening that soon out of one of these uh, out of one of these full international conferences and it is going to come I think in the next uh, few years I think but unless there is a a major global catastrophe on, on the scale that you see in the movies uh, I, I can't see it happening. I, I think it has to be, it has to come through unilateral action now. Uh, that's the only way some pro- serious progress will be made. Uh, and that will be difficult, of course, because uh, capitalists will cry that you're giving us a disadvantage. But I think the zeitgeist is uh, shifting among the populace and it, you can only change it through people power, I think. Just on that, um, there was, I don't know if, Part of this way it's coming from, but um, Aaron Bastani um, was talking about this on Navarra Media on Friday, I think it was, when, when there wasn't a, a deal announced. And he made a very similar point in that he thinks, you know, the, the extent to what you're going to get from, from international agreements is limited. And, and what what really, because it's, it's hard to effectively lobby 
um, as a as a mass activist movement at, at the global state on the global stage. Um, so he, his point was that what we, what we need is is activist action at, at the national political level, which I suppose for us, I suppose then in the UK on the left, the, the question comes: Fine, we've made some progress at COP, but we all know it's not nearly enough. So what are we going to do about it to affect the UK government policy um, between you know over the next twelve months? So so that when the UK goes to Egypt, how how are we going to seek to influence what they're putting on the table in Egypt in twenty twenty two? It's the danger, of course, is that these conferences become an excuse for doing less. Uh, and that needs to be avoided at all costs. Uh, I suspect some governments will use that. I would expect our own governments to, to use it uh, to avoid uh, reforms. Uh, so that that's why one, another reason why I think these international conferences are becoming less and less import, important in their current format. Absolutely, and I suppose that leads us on nicely to our second topic of discussion there. Um, now, HS2 has is, is been a, a long-awaited uh, extension to uh, the UK's high-speed rail network. It was a uh, proposed line years ago now. It's been uh, rumbling on the uh, ground was broken a few years ago and the plan was that you would have a a line running up the spine of the country up through the midlands uh, stopping at birmingham and then splitting after there and going to leeds and manchester and liverpool respectively now the government certainly based on what is coming out of the newspapers over the last few days the government is seeking to scrap that branch to leeds now, the HS2 project itself uh, in, in the West Yorkshire region has at times attracted quite a bit of controversy based on some of the uh, woodlands being uh, brought down, based on some of the towns that are going to have a huge railway viaduct ploughed through them, but no station to serve the, those towns, and also the, the essential lack of communication with any of the uh, residents that are going to be living near the lines. However, nonetheless, it is part of the government's levelling up agenda. It's a proposal that is not just going to bring economic prosperity, but also help impact the transition into a low carbon, then eventually a zero carbon economy, a high speed electric railway. Now, the government is going to get rid of this uh, extension, it seems. It will keep the main branch that will run up to Manchester and split off later to Liverpool and continue on up to Scotland further from there. But Leeds is then going to be left without a uh, uh, a real proper new high-speed connection. It's already got the the uh, the main East Coast line that, that runs up from London up to Edinburgh that runs through the uh, the city. But the proposals now is that they'll get a, a few short extensions off the existing Midland main line running through Sheffield and, and running out of the East Midlands, but no real new infrastructure. Now, Leeds has been um, a huge supporter. The city of Leeds is, is keen to see HS2 come to the city. Uh, it's a massive development opportunity in that city centre. They've um, cleared and and... and essentially bookmarked a lot of space in the city centre for a new high-speed station. 
they've uh, they've put the infrastructure in place or have planned to have the infrastructure in place, um, but now they've been left high and dry. Um, but what this says about the the government's wider um, leveling up agenda, their Green New Deal, to use that Labour term terminology, their Green Deal is clearly um, well, it's it's empty. It's it's promises but without action. The uh, the line extension to Leeds, which is a very bustling and aspirational city, uh, it's a Labour city. It must be noted, as is Manchester and Liverpool. But the uh, the Tories have very little to benefit from this. Now, some political commentators have said that it is a political decision to uh, save money and ignore Leeds and instead benefit by bringing high speed connections to areas that the Conservatives are more likely to win. Now, I'm more of the mind that actually it might be a potential bit of political games, but I also think that it's uh, the sign that the government does not does not care about levelling up. They don't actually care about the uh, levelling up agenda. It's, again, just an empty catchphrase, but there's no real funding. There's no real aspiration for these areas of the North that need the connections and need the funding now if we're going to bring down the, uh, the, the CO2 footprint and if we're going to level up to use that that phrase in terms of in terms of jobs in terms of the average income in these areas in terms of affordable housing in terms of good quality work as well um, and to make these places a hub of of uh, prosperity so the knock-on impact of this really does does seem to be very um very strong on the on the west yorkshire region um Again, just to bring bring this back to Leeds and, and the area there, this is an area that relatively, until relatively recently, had uh, trains running on, on its local services that use the bus's chassis. So, the, you know, this is a massively underfunded area. It's an area that needs uh, a lot of investment and it's not happening with this Conservative government. Equally, I, I, I wanted to open this out afterwards and to get your thoughts on the... Uh, the green agenda of the government and really what this says about the, the government there. But Callum, I see you've got your hand up. So do you want to come in? Yeah, I was just going to say t 10 years ago, uh, I, I remember reading about HS2 because these big projects rumble on for a long time. And I remember reading in Private Eye, uh, criticism not of the northern part of the line, uh, but just the part between London and Oxford. And uh, the author there, who was their columnist on transport issues, said that there's a huge amount of opposition in that part of the world to the line. And an easy way to resolve the issue would probably be just to build a few stations in between. Um, I think that the uh, issue with HS2 uh, is that it's not really being... Built as anything other than, uh, from the Westminster perspective, uh, a sort of vanity project f to a large extent. Um, it's not really, to my mind, about developing the North. Um, and perhaps we shouldn't be surprised that they are now stopping at Manchester, which is really at the very limit, even if you're on a, a high speed line. Uh, of where you could conceivably extend the London commuter belt. So why would you extend it to Leeds if that was your intention? I am still a little bit surprised, though, uh, because 
obviously a lot of the territory that the line will go through between Manchester and Leeds uh, is uh, so-called Red Wall territory. Uh, so one would have thought perhaps a couple of stations, uh, as Private Eye was arguing 10 years ago, should be put in the south along those lines, uh, would actually improve the government's rep there. But uh, they uh, evidently the government doesn't uh, see that as a, an interesting enough prospect. I just thought that was uh, worth throwing into the debate um, because, of course, this government, more than any other government I've ever seen, uh, does like to think about the, uh, well, bribery, I suppose, uh, of, of, of local areas uh, when it makes policy. Um, and that doesn't seem to be being applied here, at least from my perspective. Absolutely. And I, I think that that potentially, as as I say, some people have suggested that this is the case and and actually they they've clearly made a political calculation and and that means that they won't benefit as much from the line going to Leeds as they would potentially for it going to Manchester um and or Liverpool um I'm still of the uh I'm still of the uh, persuasion that it's it potentially is an element of that um but I think that actually as as you identify Callum it's a it's a huge vanity project um, a, a truly effective high-speed line would serve uh, all the towns and, and some of the smaller cities in between um, London and Manchester and Birmingham and, and Leeds and, and actually connect up the country. Instead, we're looking towards urban centres for being this uh, these, these places already connected by high-speed railways as being supposedly how we're going to level up. Well, actually, it's a lot of the forgotten towns and cities around the country that need proper investment and need infrastructure. Um, you only have to look at uh, other areas of, of Yorkshire and, and Lancashire, you know, places that did have a railway once, but they were closed. Um, and and there's no real proposals to reopen any connections. So still, if you want to get a train to London and you live in the middle of, of nowhere, we're actually in quite a large town that doesn't happen to have a railway then you've still got to get a bus or in most cases you've got to drive because the bus service is appalling. So I don't think the, the levelling up agenda actually builds a network for levelling up. It simply uh, casts towns and cities on, onto the uh, scrap heap and only injects money into a select few that are already relatively well off in the grand scheme of things. Ollie. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, I was on the train to, to Leeds yesterday, uh, incidentally, which was... It was. I enjoyed it. I hadn't been on a train in a while, um, but you know there is a, just such a massive uh, disparity of wealth and investment in this country, uh, as you rightly noted at the beginning. Um, I don't know how it's not a bigger scandal that they use such um, such powers on on MPs to to threaten them with funding for their constituencies. It really should not work like that at all. Um, and it, it shouldn't be that you know we ha- they had to fight over funding in the first place. Um, I think you know every, every northern part of this country needs massive investment, and it's something which, for example, China China are doing really well. They've got over uh, thirty eight sorry, I think it's around thirty eight thousand kilometers of high speed rail, uh, which is very low carbon, um, and that's down to their investment. You know, every almost every city in their in their country is connected with this this high speed rail, 
um, and they really, really lead the world on it in that in that respect. And that there's no reason why this country this country can't be similar. Um, and and every you know town or or um, you know city can be connected like that. Um, it just comes down to investment and and what's politically possible. Um, so I think it's really important to think amb- like ambitiously when we talk about this, um, because it shouldn't come down to uh, you know, small parts of the project being cut off, uh, down to political decisions on whether or not it's it's good for them or not to um, to to have this this line particularly. It, it's just it's frustrating because there's so much possible, um, but it's just it's never going to come through through lack of political will. I think. Absolutely, absolutely. I think I think you're right to identify there, Ollie, that ambition is exactly what we need we need an ambitious leveling up agenda um the present leveling up agenda is uh right as, as we've we've all identified it's uh it's a, a fraud really it's uh it's a magic trick it's trying to uh, pull the cloth over people's eyes you know but i don't think people are are actually as stupid as the government thinks because they seem to think that by promising something and then winning a few votes on the back of it and then not delivering on it and then repeat and rinse is something that they uh, really is, is going to see success long term. But I, I think people genuinely would turn around and say, so why aren't we getting our high speed connection? So why isn't the infrastructure actually coming? Where are these jobs that you promised? Where are the new houses that you've promised? I still can't afford to 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 rent. I still can't afford to buy and how's my family i still being paid very very low wage where i work and i'm being exploited and you promised that you'd look after me and there's no ambition whatsoever so i think an ambitious program of of leveling up and climate justice as well as social justice is exactly what we need and exactly what we need our politicians to be talking about now instead of being uh sold to the highest bidder which they currently are and in terms of the uh use of funding as a as a carrot and a stick for mps in in the ways that they vote i think that's that's despicable and we we can't allow that to carry on um these sorts of things should be made independent of uh of any any vote in parliament and funding should be allocated fairly and based on need and based on population so uh yeah, we, we certainly need to, to look at these sorts of things going forward. And really, uh, Bradley, I'm I'm keen to just, as I say, expand this out into... So Ollie says that we need an aspirational approach to this. Um, but in terms of the broader fight against the climate crisis, um, where do we go from here then if the government is already backtracking and we've only just had a COP agreement come out and already they're backtracking on, on a number of major zero carbon investments that they're looking to bring in well ideally what we need is a mass social movement that is incredibly focused on on what it's after um and i, and I think something like the green new deal that was in the 2019 labor manifesto um is a is a good starting point i by no means suggest it's perfect in every aspect but um yeah so so for starters we need the labor party as i've said on this podcast before putting a Green New Deal front of centre of everything it does, basically. It, it it encompasses so many issues, 
but gives them that narrative that ties it all together that we, we just didn't quite get across to the public in 2019, I don't think. I think a lot of people within the party and activists were very aware for themselves what their narrative was. You know, that, you know we're in exceptional times. We need radical solutions to radically transform the country, democratise the economy and, and politics, uh, and redistribute wealth away from the wealthy that are you know, destroying the planet, basically. I think a lot of activists probably knew what their narrative was, but I don't know if we always got it across well in in campaigning in 2019. And of course, Brexit didn't neatly fit into that narrative either, and that was a massive, massive issue during 2019. So I think Green New Deal gives us that narrative to tie all these socialist policies together. Um, So Labour needs to put that front and centre. So any any activists within the Labour Party need to do whatever they can do to, to get a Green New Deal uh, front and centre of Labour messaging, whether it's on a local level in, in council elections or, or whether it's nationally. So, you know, run to be a ca- if you if you believe in the Green New Deal, run to be a councillor, support those others that are running to be councillors um, that, that also believe in that, get on positions in your local EC, get on national um, positions as well. So whether it's campaign groups like the Campaign for Labour, Labour Party Democracy or, or NEC positions, regional positions, whatever, so that, that's what Labour activists need to do. But the Labour Party can only be one part of it. You know, we, we need a broader social uprising now at this point. So we need to be mobilising within trade unions. We need to be trying to get Extinction Rebellion, I think, needs to adapt its tactics a little bit and insulate Britain. Um, what we need is all those groups to come together, really. Uh, and, and ideally, you, you know, you would want to see a Labour Party playing some form of leadership role in that. Uh, I think that was possible when we saw bits of that happen to Corbyn. Uh, clearly, Starmer's not the guy to get that done. So we, we need to we need to sort our house out and get our house in order a little bit first. Um, but yeah, we, we need a mass social movement united around a Green New Deal in the UK. Um, uh, uh, that we need to focus our energy. But it, it's not it's not just going to come from the Labour Party winning an election. Um, it's not just going to come from um, an, another mass rebellion by Extinction Rebellion. Um, it, it needs all these pieces coming together. It, it needs people mobilising in their workplaces. It needs uh, direct action and civil disobedience. It needs parliamentary politics. It needs all of it. I think that is a great place to end the uh, the podcast. Really gives us a an understanding, certainly on a on a national level where we can be organising, on a local level where we can be organising. And uh, we can only hope and, and be ambitious, as, as Ollie said, um, for the future. Because if we're, if we're not ambitious, who else will be? Ultimately, everyone has a responsibility to have an input into a social movement that could make a change. So, uh, yeah, I think we'll end the podcast there. I suppose it's, a, it's an interesting time we live in. It's a time where we might not be getting the results that we want from the politicians, but there's certainly hope in the broader social movements that will be fighting for this. So it's a goodbye from me and a goodbye from Callum Watt. Goodbye, Callum. Thank you for that wonderful call to arms, Bradley. I feel a lot more optimistic. Um, and I think we can, uh, we can get things done as bleak as it does look. Um, one of the things, of course, you need to do is join a trade union, as we always say. But I'll see you next time. Absolutely. And it's a goodbye from Bradley Allsop. Yeah, goodbye, folks. Um, do do the things you can where you are um, and keep, keep fighting. And it's a goodbye from Ollie Walwyn. 
Goodbye, everyone. Take care. Don't buy into Malthusian thinking. It, it, this planet has more than enough resources for many, many billions of people. Um, so, yeah, don't buy into ecofascism. <laughs> Absolutely. There we go. What a, what a note to finish on. And uh, we'll see you next time. <laughs>